Welcome to Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Land of mildew, geckos, and private parts. And um, I know of no trio of books in the Bible that has successfully terminated read-through-the-Bible programs than these three. People get Genesis, yes, Exodus, yes, they get to Leviticus, and if that doesn't stop them, Numbers and Deuteronomy usually do. Um, you know, my hope today, though, as we go through these three books in kind of an overview way and trace their core uh, concepts and teachings, is that we will come to value them and, yes, even read them, just like we do every other page in our Bibles. Because through these books, and I, I think if you're prayerful about what you're about here today, you'll sense it today. These books have the power to speak to you about your lives. I mean, not just about your mildew problems and your gecko issues, but I mean about the condition of your heart as they paint an absolutely stunning, stunning portrait of God in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You know, in Genesis, we saw God as creator. We saw him choose a man named Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, to be his redeemed people, to bring them to a promised land from where they would be blessed in order that they would be a blessing to all the nations. In the book of Exodus, we saw God deliver that chosen people from slavery, and God revealed himself as a redeemer and as a deliverer through those ten great plagues and the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. And now in the book of Leviticus... God shows himself to be radically holy. I mean, tear down your house. It has mildew in it, kind of holy. So in light of that, in light of the the character of God that we're going to focus on today, I think it would be good for us all just to take a moment and ready ourselves to meet a holy, holy, holy God in his word. Okay, Would you pray with me? Father, I think that if any of us had a sense for the one before whom we are really seated in this moment, it might just terrify us. And so this morning, God, I pray that we might see you more truly because of this time together as we look at your work. We are so very thankful. I pray that you would ratchet up our thankfulness even more for the one who does give us access to a holy, holy God. And we do pray in his name, Jesus. Amen. Well, about a year after that great deliverance happened in the book of Exodus, they finished building that tent called the tabernacle where God would meet with his people and lead them as they were on their journey from Mount Sinai uh, to that land of promise that God had given them. 
And it's after that completion of that tent that God took about a month and he gave a set of instructions to Moses that are contained in what in our Bibles is called the book of Leviticus. If you have your Bible with me this morning, you just open up the book of Leviticus and you can kind of follow along as we go through it and get a sense for kind of the lay of the land there. But it's a set of very detailed laws and instructions. And you can break them largely into two parts. The first 15 chapters help them deal with their sin. It's a set of offerings and sacrifices and things like that 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 help them deal with the sins that they've committed as a people. The, The latter half of the book, from chapter 17 to the end in chapter 27, help them know how to walk free from sin. It's a lot of moral and ethical instructions and commands in the latter half of the book of Exodus. And right in the middle, in chapter 16, it's kind of the pivotal portion of the book, It's the instructions for what's known as the Day of Atonement. Now, in those first 15 chapters, the first seven chapters focus on a series of five main offerings that God's people would make as part of their worship. There was um, a burnt offering and grain offering and peace offering, sin offering and guilt offerings. All these are detailed very rigorously in these first Seven or first seven chapters. And these offerings are a crucial part of a critical question that God's people were pressed with. We're still pressed with it today. How does a sinful, grumbling people approach a holy, holy, holy God? And, and a big part of the answer to that is in these early chapters of the book of Leviticus. And that is you approach him by means of a sacrifice. Here's a bit of an example from the very first chapter, just a brief example of one of those sacrifices. Chapter 1, verse 14 says, If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering, one of those five main types of offerings, it's a burnt offering of birds, he's to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He's to remove the crop with its contents and throw it to the east side of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not severing it completely. And then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If nothing else... Leviticus is graphic in terms of helping us understand how heinous is our sin that it would require this kind of bloody, messy offering to deal with. There's a lot of things that, if you read through Leviticus, won't make a lot of sense. And there are a lot of things that I don't understand in the book of Leviticus. But I tell you what, you have a sense That sin is far worse than we ever thought it was when you read these early chapters of Leviticus and get a sense for what it costs for for sinful people to approach a holy, holy, holy God. Now these five main offerings that are portrayed in the early chapters of Leviticus, uh, they have about five parts to them. Not all of them have all the parts, but... um, A lot of them consist of these five parts. First is a laying on of hands. where They would take the goat or the the lamb or or the bull or whatever was being offered, and the one offering it would lay his hands on it. And this was symbolic of substitution, that that offering was taking the sinner's place 
and that the sinner would draw near to a holy God through another's sacrifice. They would take his place. Now the second part of the offering was the actual slaughter of the animal. And this portrayed vividly what was the penalty for sin. We'll often hear it expressed in this language. The wages of sin is death. And that was made evident because the animal that was a substitute for the sinner had to die. The third part was the actual presentation of the blood. And you read through the instructions in Leviticus for priests. And they're always sprinkling blood everywhere and rubbing it on all kinds of things. And this is evidential that, that the sacrifice has been made, that the penalty has been paid. Like back in Exodus, you remember the Passover. They spread it on the doorposts. It was evidence that the sacrifice had been made on their behalf. Now the next part, the fourth part of these offerings is often a burning where the, the sacrifice is actually offered, offered to God in worship and the smoke ascends to Him and He breathes it in and accepts it and consumes it. And the last part is, is just a beautiful thing. Often it'll be a meal where the restored sinner has fellowship with a holy God. Um, and when you think about it, this is freighted with correlations and significance about Christ's great sacrifice for us. A lot of those five things are present in what Jesus did for us. And you think about when we come to the Lord's Supper together, some of those same elements are present there, symbolizing for us the sacrifice that was made in order that sinful people might have a meal, communion, fellowship with a holy, holy, holy God. Well, chapters 8 through 10 that follow are a set of instructions for the priests who will administer this offering. You learn that if you're going to connect with a holy God, you need a sacrifice and you need a mediator who will bring that about. And so they've got detailed instructions, very detailed instructions and very important instructions for the priest. And woe to the priest who deviated from God's instructions. Um, in fact, in chapter 10... Aaron's two sons, who were priests, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense as part of their priestly duties, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to His command. So they were do-it-yourselfers. They were going to do it their way and innovate a little bit. And it says, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And I hope in, in just a couple minutes I can give you some idea about why that kind of thing happens. But it was serious business when the priests offered worship and sacrifice on behalf of the people. I mean, people died when they did it wrong. Lives were at stake uh, at every turn when the people approached God. The next four to five chapters, chapter 11 through 15, introduce this matter of cleanness and uncleanness. That is, things that are acceptable or unacceptable to God for worship. And, you know, there were animals that were clean and animals that were unclean. And there were people who were in certain conditions and times were clean and they were unclean. A lot of different things like that. 
But the idea behind this seems to be, uh, in this illustration, that God is drawing a circle of things that he says are clean. They are acceptable to be used in worship of God. And there's a whole other set of things and people that are not. Now they add to this another layer. Right at the center of the things that are clean are things that are holy. They are clean things that can be used for worship that in fact have been set aside exclusively to be used for the glory of God. For instance, some guy might have a whole flock of sheep and they were all clean, but if you had an unblemished firstborn male lamb, that was holy and set aside for the Lord in the midst of all that clean flock. And when things started to get dicey in the book of Leviticus is when somebody took something that was holy and rubbed it up against something that was unclean. Priests started dying when that happened because priests were holy. They were set apart to serve and worship the Lord. Um, You get a sense of it from these verses. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. 15, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. Again, you get a sense for the seriousness of this whole thing. But the other thing that I want to make sure that you realize is that as far as we're concerned, we are the holy ones, right? Christ has purchased us and made us holy, redeemed us by his own blood, this great and costly sacrifice. And when things that are set aside as holy, that's you and me, start messing around with things that are unclean, that would be sin. It is a very, very dangerous place to be. And so I hope that the next time you're surfing the net uncritically and you're tempted to go somewhere you ought not go, this imagery might come to your mind of what is unclean and what is holy and the dire consequences that come into people's lives who mix those two. Well, the next chapter is is chapter 16 and it is that pivotal chapter in the book of Leviticus where he gives directions for the the National Day of Atonement. You may know it as Yom Kippur. Um, Amidst all the elaborate instructions for this day, after the priest has made atonement for his own sins, he offers a bowl for his own sins, he he brings two goats. It's real interesting in chapter 16. It says, He shall then slaughter the goat, one of the goats, for the sin offering for the people. To atone for the sins of the nation, this goat does. And he takes its blood behind the curtain, and he does with it what he did with the bull's blood. He sprinkles it. There's that spreading around the evidence of the sacrifice made on the atonement cover and in front of it. So one goat is sacrificed to make atonement for the people's sins as a sacrifice. But what's interesting is what happens to the other goat. When Aaron is finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites. It's that symbol of substitution again. 
all their sins, and he puts them, as he lays hands on it, on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task, and the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. And these two goats symbolize these two great sacrificial acts of the one goat slain and the other goat sent away into the desert, bearing the people's sins. These together represent what Christ has done for us. See, he is both our sacrifice and our scapegoat. He has borne our sins away. The book of Hebrews picks up on this. It says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that already are, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter it by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. So Christ is both priest and sacrifice for us. He's all that we need. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Hebrews continues saying, Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. To take away the sins of many people. He is our sacrifice and he is our sin bearer. He is our scapegoat. He has borne our sins for us. He's priest and he's offering all at once. He is all we need. The sacrifice of these two goats then points us to the greater sacrifice of Jesus. You know, there was a survey published by Barna in uh, 2006. It says three out of every four Americans believe that it's possible for someone to become holy regardless of their past. But only half of the people think they've ever met anyone who would qualify as holy. And only about 20% of them think they are holy. You know, it's really interesting. The statistics are almost no different for people who claim to be born-again Christians. And there's a sense in which that's not a bad perception. You know what? Anyone can become holy. And none of us on our own merit are holy. But there is one who laid down his life and who bore our sins and who interceded for the Father on our behalf. And he has made us holy, set aside to live our lives for the glory of our great, great King. Book of Hebrews chapter 2 says it this way, For this reason Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, our priest, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people 
our sacrifice. Christ is all we need. He is the end, the fulfillment of the law. Thank God for Jesus the Christ. Now the rest of the book of Leviticus chapters 17 to 27 are a lot of ethical instructions that keep, show the people how not to walk in, in sin, how they can walk in fellowship with a holy God. And some of them are strange, like Leviticus 19, 19, who says, Keep my decrees. Do not mate two different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. And do not wear cloth clothing woven of two kinds of material. So polyester wool blends are out, okay, in case you were wondering about that. Um, some of them are like that. They sound like they're just from another world. But a whole other set of them just sound like they were written just for today. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't deceive one another. Don't swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man. Do not curse the deaf. What's the point in that anyway? Um, Or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am Yahweh. I mean, that's for today, isn't it? That stuff works. Now, the trick in Leviticus is, so which ones are we supposed to do? Okay. I mean, is it okay to wear britches that have a little polyester in with the wool or cotton in with the wool? Is that all right? Or, you know, do we really have to bulldoze our house because of that mildew that we've got? Is Geico in bad shape because of those commercials? And so, you know, different people have come up with different approaches to trying to sort all this out. Um, Some have divided the law into ceremonial, civil, and moral divisions. The ceremonial and civil are are no longer binding on us, but the moral ones are. And uh, perhaps the most helpful guide I could give you in terms of a starting place for just simply sorting out, is this something I need to be concerned about? Is simply look and see if the New Testament reiterates it. You know, um, most all of what we would consider to be moral instructions in the Old Testament are reiterated in the New. Here's, here's a case in point. Um, do not lie with, one as one, with a man as one lies with a woman. That's detestable. So is that like right there with the mildew and the mixed cloth, or is that for today? Well, you go to the pages of the New Testament, and the mildew's gone and the mixed cloth's gone, but you do find in the book of Romans this kind of language. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. It's abomination in the Old Testament. Um, same gender sexuality or uh, sexual intercourse and interaction. And it's a perversion in the New Testament. So we, we'd say, yeah, that one follows us right along. So that's a really helpful starting place for you in trying to sort these things out um, as you try to figure out which ones of these laws apply. So in the book of Leviticus, amidst all these amazing laws, God shows himself to be radically holy. I mean, stunningly holy. If you read the book of Leviticus, there'll be a lot of things you don't understand and a bunch of things that seem weird But I tell you what, you will be stunned at the holiness of God when you read this book. I hope you will. But also, it calls us to be holy, to be that red circle in the center. 
I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Again and again and again, these early books in the Bible make that connection. I am holy, God says, so you be holy. And as a result of that, when you read the book of Leviticus and you hear it taught, know that God is extending to you an invitation to repent of your sin and to live a life separated from the uncleanness of sin, to live a life set apart for the glory of God, to live holy because he is holy. Now, once these directives in Leviticus are in the hands of God's people, they are on the way getting ready for their journey. They're ready to leave from Mount Sinai to head off to the promised land. Um, And there's a series of preparations in addition to Leviticus that really gets them moving in that direction. It's found in the book of Numbers. Um, I'll save that for a minute. The first ten chapters of the book of Numbers are getting ready for the journey to the promised land. And they're full of hope and encouragement and optimism. You've got in that ninth chapter, God himself is leading his people on this journey. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony was set up, the cloud, which represents the presence of God, covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. And that is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out, and wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. And God is just leading, he's personally leading his people to the land of promise, where they will be blessed so that they will be a blessing to all peoples. It's a beautiful setting in these first ten chapters of the book of Numbers. But it's about... um, three days into that journey on something that really should have been, some estimate, about an 11-day journey. So it's about a two-week trip from Sinai to the Promised Land, probably, uh, on foot. They fall back into an old pattern. We, We heard about it last week, grumbling. And in Numbers chapter 11, the people complained about their hardships three days into the journey. They complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was roused. And fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Tabera because fire from the Lord had burned among them. And pretty much you'd think that would settle it. Well, the very next verse, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melon, leeks, onions, and garlic. But we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. See, It was so great to be in Egypt. They had this big sign in Egypt, slaves eat free. It was just wonderful. They could eat anything they wanted, as much as they wanted. All they had to do was get whipped and beaten and flogged and make bricks without straw all day in the hot Egyptian sun. It was wonderful. They wished they could go back because now all they have is manna, which, of course, all manna was was this miraculous provision of God for a couple million people to survive in the desert. That's all it was. And they were like, oh, Egypt. The food was so good at the, at the buffet in Egypt. 
Well, God, God's response, every parent loves the way God responds to his people at this point in time. A little farther down in chapter 11, he says, Moses, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. Not just manna, now you get meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Okay? Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? This is every parent just resonates with what God is doing to his children at this point in time. And I, I want you to know that this probably falls into the category of divine prerogative, not parenting principle. So I, I wouldn't pick this up and put it in your arsenal uh, without further study at this point in time. But amazingly, by the kindness of God, rather than kill his people, he, he provides for them and they arrive at the border of the land of promise. They are virtually there. And at God's directive, they send 12 spies into the land to see what it's like, to see how good God's promise really is. And they report back, these 12 spies, in Numbers chapter 13, they've been in the land for 40 days, and they now bring back a report. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And it was huge. Just beautiful fruit. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are very powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw descendants of Anak there. These are giants. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So they're saying, we found large fruit and a few large people. Um, and they're all, that's their report. Tell them where everybody lives, that's kind of the report. And then Caleb steps up to speak. And Caleb silences the people before Moses, and he says, we should go up. And take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim, who were giants. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. See, the ten now have modified their report. I don't know if you noticed it. The land is no longer good. Now it devours people. Um, they're not a few tall folk who have descended from giants. Now all the people are shack-sized. Okay. And, and there are giants themselves right there. And Caleb and Joshua stand alone Amongst the twelve, calling the people to trust God and enter the Lamb and claim His promises. And the people are at a, at a crossroads and they're pressed by these questions. 
Is what God provided good or not? Will they trust God or will they fear man? And they choose to fear man, and in so doing, they speak words that they will forever regret. In chapter 14, it says, That night all the people of the community raised their voices, wept aloud, and all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader. We should go back to Egypt. So as they are on the verge of choosing a new leader and going back, it's the same grumbling that we heard in the book of Exodus, only it's a notch higher now. They reject the promise of God to give them this land. They reject his chosen leader, Moses. And now they reject God himself. He had revealed himself as their deliverer. He was the God who took them out of Egypt. And they are guilty of a grievous sin. They have said by their choices that God does not keep his word, that he is not faithful, that he is not good, that he is not mighty enough to bring it to pass. And when you hear their words, you have to stop and say, am I doing that? I mean, when I give in to fear, is that what I'm saying about God? That he's not good? That he won't keep his promises? That he doesn't care? That he's not strong enough, mighty enough to take care of me and my family? Oh, that we would be like Caleb and Joshua. God says of Caleb, because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land that he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. God's judgment does come upon the people for what they've done. It says, Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you've rejected, but you, your bodies, will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. And so what should have been about a two-week journey turns into 40 years in the desert. And none of that generation, except Joshua and Caleb, will enter that land that God had promised he would give to them. So chapters 15 to 21 in the book of Numbers, that next unfolding set of chapters, records those 40 years in the desert. And guess what marks their time in the desert? Grumbling. (laughs) Chapter 21, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. But even more amazing than their grumbling 
is God's grace that he gives to them. Watch how it unfolds. The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. What grace God extends. And it's a picture of an even greater grace. Because Jesus himself would take this story and quote it here in John chapter 3 in the New Testament. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, Jesus says, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, a reference to his own crucifixion that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Again, these, these ancient books written so, so long ago are pointing us towards God's great sacrifice in Christ for us. That if we will just look on the crucified Christ and believe It'll be enough for our sins to be forgiven. The bite of the serpent will be no more upon us. The imagery is so rich. These books are readying us to believe in Christ, to believe in Jesus. Well, the latter chapters of Numbers get them ready to enter the land, actually, and that happens in the book of Joshua we'll look at next week. They take a second census. There was one taken at the beginning of the book. That's why they call it the book of Numbers. Census at the beginning and census at the end. Now with a whole new generation, though. Everyone died out, including Moses, at the end of of this whole ordeal. So Numbers challenges us to trust and obey God. To believe that his ways, though they are difficult, are best. And what he holds out for us is truly good And he will bring it to pass. Like Caleb, follow God wholeheartedly, the book of Numbers says. So they are poised to enter the land. And before Moses dies, he delivers three great messages to his people to get them ready to enter the land. And those three messages are what make up the book of Deuteronomy. So his first sermon in the first four chapters of Deuteronomy is a review of the history of his great acts on behalf of God's people. His second sermon runs the bulk of the book from chapter 5 to 26, and that's an exposition of the law. He gives the Ten Commandments again, and he explains the law again a second time, and that's part of where this book gets its name, Deuteronomy. The third And final sermon is at the back of the book, along with his last acts from chapter 27 to 34, and it involves the ratifying of their covenant with God. And throughout these sermons, there are three great themes that seem to run often throughout Moses' last words. These are the last things Moses wanted to urge upon his people. I just want to touch on these three themes for you, and all I've got a chance to do is expose you to them. But I just want you to be sensitive to whether or not God might be saying something about you and your life through Moses' last great words to his people. So the first theme that runs through Moses' sermons is this. Remember. Remember. He says, remember the Lord your God, 
For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. I think every American Christian should have this on their refrigerator or maybe in their checkbook. Remember the Lord when you prosper, he's saying. Don't forget me when I prosper you. It says it a different way in Deuteronomy 7. It says, don't be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Remember what God has done for you when you're afraid, he says. Remember. Remember when you're wealthy. Remember when you're afraid. Um, Remember this, he says, never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you've been rebellious against the Lord. He wants us to remember the depth of our sin and how much we need a sacrifice and a mediator for us to be right with our God. Remember is the first great thing that Moses says. And um, in chapter 4, he says, Be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen and let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. You know, remembering is a lost art. We don't look back much in our day. We want to look forward. What's next? What's newest? What's coming up? What's the latest, greatest, hottest, fastest thing? And Moses says, you need to remember. How do you remember God's goodness in your life? And do you journal? Do you, some of our families, we've dabbled in this, we have a manna jar where we put in things that God has done for us, write them on a piece of paper, put them in there every once in a while, we open it up and read them. How do you do that? How do you remember? How do you help your children remember? And some of you are at a point in life where you can ask the question, how do you help your grandchildren remember? Because it says, teach them to your children and to your children after them. How will you help them remember the great acts of God in your life, in the scriptures and in your life? Remember, Moses says, don't forget. It's the first great theme. Second one is obedience. Obedience runs throughout the book of Deuteronomy over and over again. Sayings like this, hear, O Israel, and be careful. Be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. You want to experience all the goodness of God that he wants to give to you and obey him. And the chapter 28 in Deuteronomy puts this positively and negatively. It says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Go down just a couple verses, though, and it says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow those commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Deuteronomy calls us to obey God in everything. Um, how's your obedience? Maybe God's prompting you, even as we just read these few verses this morning, about an area where you're compromising. Well, the last great theme is related closely to that second one, and it's love. You can expect it, 
But love is one of the great themes woven throughout the law in Deuteronomy. The love God has for us. It says in um, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. God is a God of love in the book of Deuteronomy, and he calls us to love him in return. Now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commands, decrees, and laws, and then you'll live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Jesus said, this is the most important thing. Do this first. Do this well. Well, these three great books each has a unique challenge for us, I think. Leviticus is this great call to holiness. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. That's what God says to his people and he says it to us. You be holy because I am holy. The book of Numbers challenges us to trust God. Like Caleb, he says, because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly I'll bring him into the land that was promised to him. Trust God. Follow him wholeheartedly. Believe that his promises are true. Maybe God's speaking to you today about trusting him. About believing. Deuteronomy has a great challenge just to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. To not hold back to love God, to pour your life out in service to Him. These are three great books that God has given us to show us what it means for us as sinners to walk in fellowship with a holy God. If God's been speaking to you this morning, a great first step of obedience for you is simply to come for closing prayer uh, alone or with a friend, or our leaders are always available down here in the front rows to pray with you. But our worship team is going to come now and lead us in a closing declaration of this amazing love of God. If you'll stand, we'll worship him and close together. And I encourage you to come for prayer if God's speaking to you about it today.